0: Honored guests, good evening and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Michael Cannon. I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies here at Cato. And uh, tonight we're here to talk about a problem that's uh, not reported on often enough. Uh, It's the problem of medical errors. Uh, It is estimated that in the United States, uh, every year, as as many as 400,000 patients die from preventable medical errors. We don't hear about this very much. Uh, in the news. Uh, It's not a high profile health policy issue. I think mostly because when this happens, when someone dies from a hospital acquired infection, when someone dies from a medication error, it's very rare that you will see a story about it in the paper the next morning or even the next week or the next month. Healthcare being so complicated, it's very difficult often to uh, determine whether uh, it was a medical error that led to uh, uh, to an injury or, or or to a patient death, but the uh, numerous studies indicate that this is a problem that is uh, uh, one of the uh, that medical errors are actually one of the leading causes of death in the United States, which is why we're very glad to be sh- uh, to be screening uh, this documentary uh, called "To Error Is Human," a patient safety documentary. Uh, in a moment. We're going to hear from the director of that documentary who's going to introduce it uh, to us all. His name is Mike Eisenberg. Mike Eisenberg is a filmmaker. He's the partner and creative director at Tall Tale Productions, uh, the director of To Err is Human. He's also the son of the late John Eisenberg, who himself was a patient safety advocate and a former director of the Federal Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. After the film, we're going to hear from uh, a a panel of experts about the film and about the problem of medical errors and what we can do about it. Uh, Our panelists are going to be, in addition to Mr. Eisenberg, Carolyn Clancy, who's the executive in charge of the Veterans Health Administration. And I have to say, Carolyn, that is a fantastic title. I love executive in charge. Uh, She, uh, in that position, she directs a healthcare system with an annual budget of about 68 billion dollars. Uh, and she's held other posts at the Veterans Health Administration uh, and for 10 years was the director, again, of the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. She herself is a longtime patient safety advocate and is featured in the documentary we're we're going to see. Also on our panel is going to be David Hyman. David Hyman is a physician. He's a professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. He is an adjunct scholar here at the Cato Institute and the co-author of, most recently, uh, this book, Overcharged, why Americans pay too much for health care, uh, uh, which tackles, uh, among other issues, uh, the problem of uh, low quality and even harmful care uh, in the United States, and is available for sale in the foyer. Uh, with that, I will turn things over to Mike Eisenberg, who will introduce the film for us. Mike?
1: Um, well, thank you all for being here. Um, I'm sure a lot of the comments I... Um, make that will be of most interest will be after the film. So just a brief introduction for you now. Um, uh, we really started this project in earnest three years ago when my mother shared uh, another article that we kind of became an annual tradition that AHRQ might be defunded. Given my dad's role as the director of that agency, obviously we have some vested interest in its um, success. But we also understood at our in our core of what it was really there to do and what my father was most passionate about, which was improving the quality of healthcare for everybody in America, but doing so through research and, um, you know, evidence-based medicine. So that aside, as a filmmaker, I took it upon myself to ask my, uh, my teammates, Kaylee, who is here, who's the producer of the film, and Matt, who isn't here today because he's actually having a baby today, um, whether or not they were interested in taking on a project about patient safety. And we knew we didn't know anything about patient safety when we started. We just knew it was a topic that my father was passionate about. So um, we started by asking people who knew him, who were his mentees, who um, really were part of his life when he was working, uh, what they thought this issue was about, what was most important to them about it. And as we started to talk to them about it, we started to realize there's a much bigger picture here than just HRQ. And we took upon this journey that took three years to get to where we are now. Um, we interviewed really everyone we could find. We really thought it was important to tell the patient's story. So what you'll see in the film is a, a kind of thread of this one family that's, uh, that was victims of two separate events. But I won't spoil the ending of how things come out for them, but I think it's a really important story for everybody to see. So... Um, you know, in general, I just hope that what you get from this film is not just um, an understanding of patient safety, but also some ideas as a patient what you can do to, to be more engaged in your own health care. But also, when you think about what is most important in medicine today, start to understand how vital it is that we start to actually all be part of this process of improving healthcare in terms of quality and reliability. There's a lot in this movie to take in. Um, so we'll happily discuss a lot of it afterwards, but in the meantime, just enjoy, it. and um, I'll take any questions after, along with the panel. Thank you
2: very much. Folks. Thank you very much. Again, I'm Michael Cannon,
0: the director of health policy studies here at the Cato Institute. And uh, we've already introduced our, uh, our panelists to discuss uh, the film To Areas Human, a patient safety documentary. If you're just joining us online right now, I'll go ahead and give brief introductions of each panelist. Immediately to my left is Mike Eisenberg, who is the director of To Areas Human and partner and creative director at Telltale, uh, sorry, Tall Tale Productions. Uh, uh, To his left is Carolyn Clancy, the executive in charge at the Veterans Health Administration, who spent uh, 10 years as director of the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, which is featured prominently in To Error is Human. Uh, And then at the other end is David Hyman, a Cato adjunct scholar, uh, physician, and a professor of law at Georgetown University. Uh, Law Center, uh, and author most recently of Overcharge, which is uh, Why Americans Pay Too Much for Health Care book released by the Cato Institute this month. So uh, we've already uh, determined that uh, uh, Since we heard an introduction of the film from uh, Mike Eisenberg, uh, Carolyn and David are going to go ahead and give us some quick uh, thoughts on the film, and then we're going to have a conversation that will include your questions. Carolyn, would you like to start?
2: Sure. So first, uh, I need to say to Mike that uh, I don't think I've seen any movie three times in my life, (laughs) except maybe for Sister Act, but there's a longer story. (laughs) Not two, though. uh, Not uh, Sister Act two. No, I have not seen Sister Act just the first one, the first in the original. Anyway, um, but I could probably see it three more times, and probably more than that. Um, in part because at Arc we always had fantasies about doing something like this. We we didn't even come close. Our, our idea of being entertaining about this or catchy was uh, well pathetic, actually, in retrospect. Um, I think what also got me was how the story of the Sheridans is woven through and it gets to me for two reasons. Number one is if you're thinking about safe care, um, hospitals of course is where the opportunity is the greatest. Uh, There's something in medicine called Sutton's Law and you know the aphorism is that why did uh, they asked a famous bank robber, Willie Sutton, why do you rob banks and he said because that's where the money is. Well, if you think about where we've got complicated equipment and lots of opportunities for errors, that's going to be hospitals. But, you know, these days, as more and more care is moving out of hospitals, um, there's a whole lot that happens outside the hospital walls. So from the earliest days of patient safety, we always had these uh, multiple slides of icebergs that, you know, the hospital was the tip of the iceberg. But um, as people are living longer and living uh, well or not so well with multiple chronic illnesses, the opportunities for misadventure are pretty uh, enormous. All of which means that it's hugely, hugely important for uh, patients and families, and all of us are patients at some time, to be aware of this. And a lot of this really, really hit home for me about a year ago when I had the privilege of speaking at the Aspen Institute. Now, this is quite a glitzy affair, uh, very... an elite sort of crowd, uh, very well educated. And I will say that Peter Pronovost and I sort of moderated this session sitting on stools, and I think most of it was a whole lot of news to this audience, who had good questions but were also mildly horrified to hear uh, a lot of what we were telling them. So this is a movie whose time has long since come, and um, I'm waiting for you to open at Sundance or Silver Ducks more locally or any place else you can get into. So congratulations. I think it's hugely important. Very, very interested in what people uh, here have to say about it. The last thing I will say is this whole issue of disclosure that uh, Sue Sheridan talks about again and again, um, we know from asking people who've been harmed, uh, what would you want? Most people want an apology, particularly if it was avoidable. They want an explanation. What happens to me now? Is this temporary? Is it permanent? And so forth. And they want to know that the institution or organization is making a commitment uh, that they won't do it again. Now, in VA, we have this actually as policy for about a decade, and it is still very, very difficult because it's, emotionally hard and something that we have to work on at all times. We've studied you know, the impact that it has on surgeons and so forth, but um, it is not something you simply tell people. So I think that building this into the earliest stages of medical training makes a huge amount of sense. So thank you for the opportunity to be here.
0: Thank you, Carolyn. And of course, the most important line from SISTER Act being, we can't leave it to the feds, <laughs> right? Which brings us to David. David, your thoughts? Uh,
3: that's what hell of a setup, um, which I'm not going to cash out uh, in quite the way Michael might like uh, at the Cato Institute. Um, first, I want to congratulate Mike uh, and his uh, team for a really exceptional documentary that really, I think, brings to life the problem of problems of medical error or patient safety. Um, and I say that as somebody who spent probably the last 15 years doing empirical studies of the medical malpractice system, Uh, and of the licensure system, which are our two main attempts to try and deal with quality and safety quite imperfectly, as you've seen um, from the movie. Um, I wanted to flag uh, just two things that were said in the movie uh, and one that was not, but I think is a sort of follow-on naturally given the aviation focus. The first uh, was uh, the quote related by uh, Sue Sheridan. Of the doctor who was the pathologist as to why didn't they pick up the phone uh, and call? Uh, and the response was, it's not my job. Um, and it sounds awful, and it is awful, but it's perfectly understandable because of the way we've set up the healthcare system, the incentives for the people that operate in the healthcare system, the lack of a sort of market force uh, or any other particularly strong force, encouraging people to step up, take responsibility, and design error-free systems. Now, ask yourself, what other sector of the economy could get away with the sort of picture that you see? And then ask yourself, well, what are the components that Cause the healthcare system to operate in this way, notwithstanding wonderful people who work in the system, highly motivated people, also slackers and lazy people. Right, as uh, Gertrude Stein famously said, "The problem with life is the personnel," and the healthcare system is full of people who make mistakes, and some of them are conscientious and motivated, and some of them are not. Um, but you know, the reality is that it's not my job attitude. Uh, or if it is my job, I can fix this problem, but I can't scale it and spread it more broadly is the challenge that explains why 18 years, 19 years after To Err as Human came out, we're still having documentaries and panels and presentations at the Aspen Institute about how is it we keep killing 400,000 or so people every year, Um, rather than fixing it. And we can talk about that during the Q&A. The second uh, quote was uh, Leah Binder from the Leapfrog Institute, who said, quote, it's amazing how quickly hospitals can overhaul their safety procedures when it finds out it matters to their patients. And that, I think, is a clue to the response to my first question, right? It's the fact that hospitals and healthcare providers have quite generally and historically viewed insurers and one another as their customers rather than the patients. Uh, And so they engage in all sorts of behavior that ensures the paperwork is done properly and the bills are submitted, um, but they're not paying nearly as much attention to what patients actually care about. And we can talk about that during the Q&A as well. Um, But third-party payment, I think, is an important source of why we are... Uh, seeing the kinds of things that we are, at least as we've currently structured third-party payment. The last quote I want to leave you with is I used to fly Southwest all the time, um, and they have smart mouth flight attendants. And one of them, after we landed, said got on the mic and said, you've just completed the safest part of your journey. Please drive carefully going home. And that's exactly right, right? So ask yourself the question of why is it that the aviation industry has that commitment to safety and has that, had that success rate when healthcare um, has lagged, I think, uh, for a variety of reasons, some good, some not good at all. Some, when we pay more to people when they commit errors, we shouldn't be surprised that they lack enthusiasm for fixing those errors. So lots of things for us to talk about in the Q&A. But in closing, I want to reiterate, I think this is a wonderful documentary. And I have seen Carolyn's agency's attempts at motivating people. There's a video called Questions Are the Answer. Screen these two head to head. I think Mike comes out way ahead.
0: (laughs) Uh, Mike, do you have anything you'd like to add?
3: No, I mean, one thing that
1: kind of sprung to mind was a previous screening we did uh, during the panel. Somebody had actually made a, a comment about aviation that that reminded me of, that pilots are the first at the scene of an accident. And that's one of the reasons why aviation has taken such strides in safety. They're, you know, in many ways protecting their own. And... And um, That's not to say that that's an answer to any of the problems that we see in healthcare, but it, it is, I think, um, another interesting kind of line to, to consider when we when we ask ourselves why is aviation working so hard. There are a number of reasons, but one I think that's very keen is the idea that pilots are the first at the scene of the accident. Um, and we have to figure out a way to make healthcare a team sport, so that those who provide care feel like they are there along the way in the process um, when harm occurs so that there's personal stake in that game for them as well beyond just protecting any sort of um, litigation or career aspects which we've seen.
0: So I want to echo what uh, Carolyn and David have said. This is a fantastic documentary. I mean, uh, people who who wrestle with these issues and try to make them salient to people uh, have such a hard time doing it, and I think you've done it really masterfully. Um, I want to start off with, with one question, uh, uh, and then I'll uh, turn to the audience. For this question, I've got a couple of uh, images that, that we're going to scroll through. The um, If you could... Back up to the first one. Uh, the, the title of the film is To Error is Human. That's actually a Latin proverb. I think it comes from Seneca. The full proverb is, but to persist in error is diabolical. Uh, I thought it fitting that we have David on the on the panel here. He knows a little, a little something about uh, the diabolical, having written a book for the Cato Institute, if you go to that next slide now, uh, called Medicare Meets Mephistopheles. It is a satire about health policy. Yes, the two can uh, uh, happen together. Um, and... it. Uh, it proceeds it's the device that he uses in in that book is uh he writes it as a letter from a junior demon reporting back to satan on medicare's success as a recruitment tool and what uh one of the issues that he covers there
3: i have tenure one of the issues that
0: he covers one of the issues that he covers in this book is medical errors and low quality care now even before this book, however, if we can go to the next slide, we've been seeing things like this from, well, that's not how it's supposed to look. We've been seeing, uh, 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 we, we've been aware of this problem, uh, which is highlighted in a report to Congress from the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission. Uh, the re- report is dated June 2003. And uh, these are the economists and others who advise Congress on how Medicare should pay health care providers in order to get better. Uh, uh, lower cost, higher quality health care. And what they point out in this report back in 2003 is uh, the payment system in Medicare is uh, usually neutral or even negative toward quality. And that at times providers are paid even more when quality is worse, such as when complications result as uh, due to error. That's because Medicare operates on a fee-for-service payment system. So if a physician uh, 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 does something that injures a patient, they get paid for that initial service, but then they also get paid for the follow-up services in order to to, to correct that error, to the extra days in the hospital for a patient to overcome uh, a hospital-acquired infection, and so forth. And so if we go to this last slide... We have this situation where, and this is an article from uh, Vox uh, from, oh, I'm sorry, Sarah Cliff was still at the Washington Post in 2013 uh, that highlighted the problem this, this this sort of payment system creates, the, the the Medicare's fee-for-service payment system and other payment systems, which is that if hospitals injure patients, they actually get paid more uh, than if they provide higher quality care. And I think the problem really arises when, uh, if a hospital tries to reduce the number of errors that it commits, if it invests in those processes, if it invests in something like the OR black box and and develops those systems in order to avoid uh, uh, preventable medical errors, well, then it actually loses money as a result. So the question that I want to ask each of you is, uh, how much of this problem is due to the fact that uh, the, the federal government through Medicare, which is the largest purchaser of health care services in the United States and the world, as well as other things that the federal government has done, has really tilted the playing field uh, toward a way of paying doctors, a payment system, if you will, that externalizes the costs of medical errors uh, and uh, actually re- financially rewards them, but also penalizes health systems providers who invest in trying to reduce medical errors.
1: Well, one thing I've noticed um, throughout interviews that we've done for, for the film and, and actually sort of through conversations we've had about it is that those systems and those hospitals that do put a, a serious focus and in investment in safety in the measures that will prevent preventable mistakes, they they see themselves getting sued for less. They see themselves putting money back into measures that are going to prevent further mistakes. and And these kinds of sort of the trickle of of those efforts, those early investments in preventing mistakes from happening over and over again, like the quote suggests, not persisting in error. Uh, We're seeing that it results in a better outcome for everybody, and when they're open and transparent about mistakes that happen early in the process, that the the patients that experience that harm um, are willing to go on that journey with them. So when we talk about where is the money um, going? What we've found is that if, if the money goes towards safety efforts, the ones that we've already seen work here, and we, we put those efforts here, this place is going to see a positive result. The return on that investment is great. And I don't know where the research has gone to a point in which we can all access that, but we, we have heard this number of times as we've taken this film around, and, and I honestly believe that that's the case. So an investment in safety is is honestly going to return that investment much faster than bringing people back in a cyclical manner because errors occur. That's what I'm seeing.
2: So I think we have um, errors and safety issues in all systems regardless of how people are paid. I mean, in VA, everyone's on a salary. You don't get a bonus and all of that kind of stuff if you do more stuff and all of that. So I think all payment systems have... um, both good incentives and bad. So I think the statement that they're at best neutral towards quality is uh, right on the mark. Um, I also know that before he became a sort of stratospherically famous, Atul Gawande uh, used to do some work with insurers and consultants and surgeons who wanted to make care safer. And you know they would do arm-to-arm tactical negotiations with insurers to kind of say, look, this is how you're paying us. And if we get the patients out of the hospital faster and they're doing better, we're getting paid less. There's something wrong with this picture. Uh, Can we fix, tweak, you know, the reimbursement here? And by and large, that was not a hard sell. I'm glossing over a few details, of course. So I don't think fee-for-service has been helpful here. Um, And I think we're seeing more and more initiatives that actually start to say, no, we're not going to reward that. Uh, that number 2010 to 2015 where there was a 21% decline, that went arm in arm with both a very positive campaign for safety, the Partnership for Patients launched by CMS and many others, um, as well as it was aligned with payments, the value-based purchasing that was starting to turn the ship in a different direction so I think that's helpful I actually think psychological denial that this could even be possible we're doing our best we're well trained I meant to do well how could this possibly be and in its worst manifestations that's not my job he dropped the ball Um, I think that's been a much much bigger barrier than payment that's me personally
3: so I think um, for lots of things we haven't had good data And when we have had good data, people have tended to not want to pay close attention to it because everybody wants to think they live in Lake Wobegon, where all of their doctors in their hospital are above average. Uh, And you need um, not just to provide them with the information that they're not performing as well, but reveal it to the public because the demand-side impact has not been nearly as big as the supply-side impact. People don't want to work at places that that are delivering low-quality care. When I teach medical students about malpractice, I say to them, look, nobody goes to medical school to be in the bottom half uh, or the bottom third or the bottom 10% of facilities and doctors. By Mathematically, of course, some of them will be, but we gloss over that. Doctors are not as good at math, as physicists, and so on. Um, But in any event, I think the the response is people don't want to work at a place that's delivering low-quality care. And if you can come to them with credible information that they're not as good as they thought they were, and in fact they're worse than the place across the street, Uh, even if there isn't strong consumer demand switching to the other facility, you you see significant supply-side effects. That said, I think it's important to flag Carolyn's point about value-based purchasing, which changed the core, to varying degrees, the incentives of the system that we did have, which was, for a while, pure fee-for-service, more or less open-ended reimbursement. You do more, you see more patients, you do more to them, you get paid more. It's a sort of piecework model, and that creates... Very problematic incentives if good care results in people coming back to the doctor less often. And the book includes some episodes of hospitals that were investing aggressively in patient safety and saw a significant drop in revenues because people were coming to the hospital less often and they weren't coming back to the hospital as often, and they weren't staying in the hospital as often, right? Getting an infection in the hospital is a great way to increase the billings that are associated with it if the insurer will just write a check based on how many days you're in the hospital. So if you reduce your infection rate, you're going to reduce your revenues. Now, that will chill your enthusiasm for aggressively trying to Reduce infections, right? It's not that anybody is saying, haha let's give our patients infections so they'll make more money. It's instead they'll view them as the natural order of things or they'll have reasons for why this patient got an infection rather than trying to get to zero. So I think I'm close, I'm, I, I, I don't want to dismiss the importance of economic incentives here because I think the real, the reason why we're seeing a move to value-based purchasing is because People now understand that they're real.
1: Um, and one other analogy I, I kind of think is great to throw out is if, imagine if we paid Major League Baseball pitchers per pitch, right? That, that is not a good idea. They will throw 300 pitches a game if you're paying them per pitch. And there's something to be thought about in that concept with medicine. If we're delivering more quality care and that's what people are rewarded for, uh, it seems like a good idea. And uh, I don't have the answer for how that's actually achieved, but it's an analogy that I was told recently and I I can't kind of get out of my head.
0: Okay, so uh, we'll go ahead and take questions from the audience now. And I want to encourage anyone who's watching online who has a question, you you can ask questions via Twitter using the hashtag PTSafety. That's uh, P-T, Papa Tango Safety. Uh, When the microphone reaches you, um, I want uh, here at, uh, in our auditorium, please uh, identify yourself and any relevant affiliations and make sure that your question is a question. And so we'll take one uh, here uh, in the front row, and then in the uh, next question will be in the middle.
4: Lou Gagliano, CTAC Coalition to Transform Advanced Care. I want to comment and then pose a question. Um, the, the value-based contracting has worked, and it is working. And third-party payers uh, are taking their clients uh, to hospitals that give better care because they know that improves their bottom line. The, the issue is uh, that change really happens based on leadership. And when I looked at some of the macro programs that have brought attention to infection rates, and you look at the hospitals that have changed their patterns, it is a really driven change. So the question is: Isn't this all about having the data, measuring doctor performance, issues about bad surgery, and having leadership at the local levels pay uh, pay attention to it, and then having those who pay for it react by sending patients to where better care is given?
2: Yes, and um, I totally agree with that. Um, I think the part of aviation that we didn't hear about this movie, and I don't even think Mike Eisenberg could make this terribly compelling yet, um, is what FAA does in terms of learning from near misses, where they've got an anonymous database and they do lots of analyses, because I think that's part of the Swiss cheese model, you know, the layers behind the observable error. Um, The challenge with counting things, right, is you're limited to what you can count and see very obviously, not to say that that's not important, but understanding how you set the stage for this, whether that's a matter of your supply chain of sterile processing or you know all of the pieces that went into uh, a bad surgical outcome, for example. Um, if we don't get a handle on that, we'll never actually get ahead of the curve. It'll be more Band-Aids on Band-Aids. So that, that's my only concern. But yes, leadership makes a huge difference. Um, You know, we have started at our national leadership meetings to have uh, leaders come in who've actually had a fairly dramatic improvement over time, and the most recent one just brought complete tears to my eyes. And of course, she was the very model of servant leadership Um, from the Lexington, Kentucky VA that actually initially modeled the uh, disclosure policy, apology, uh, explanation, prompt compensation, and this commitment not to do it again.
3: Yeah, so I'd say yes, and as well, I think leadership is important, especially if it's accompanied by the exercise of market power to motivate people to pay attention to this, right? So the reason why value-based purchasing was set up was because the old system was sending the wrong set of incentives. Um, so if your local HR person goes to the CEO and says, we shouldn't include this hospital in our network anymore because it's delivering low-quality care, that's a lot more effective if they can make it stick than any number of patients saying, did you wash your hands? Did you wash your hands? Did you wash your hands? Uh, I think the other point, though, is in no other industry do we talk about leadership being required for the products to be of an acceptable level of quality, right? I mean, consumer electronics, we don't depend on our employer to motivate all of the various producers to Provide high quality at low cost. So, the question again that you should ask yourself is well, why is healthcare so different, and how much of that is really necessary versus a consequence of the way that we've chosen to pay for it?
5: Yes. Kara Jones with the American Health Policy Institute. I recently read a piece in Health Affairs that said that um, they identified more than 6,000 quality measures that we have in the system today, costing the whole system $15.4 billion annually in physician reporting. What efforts are there underway, if any, um, that are aligning and simplifying some of these quality metrics that I'm sure a lot are really great, but to make it easier and simpler for physicians and patients alike to understand them? So the
2: quick and dirty way um, is to have a composite or summary. This is the ABCD for LeapFrog. We have a one-to-five-star system not to be confused with CMS's star systems, and we've started using theirs for nursing homes and so forth, Um, which drowns out the noise. Uh, It tends to really make providers a little ticked off because they care about the atomic elements. Um, I think the question is like one of the biggest challenges we have right now, because I'll tell you right now, having produced an annual report to the Congress on uh, the state of quality in America, um, anytime you go out and ask, gosh, which of these measures can we lose, no answers. Radio silence. Everyone wants more measures. So when CMS has retired measures, it's brute force uh, because, you know, people want to keep the ones they, that everyone does well in and so on and so forth. So that, that's the kind of underbelly of transparency. I can live with that, but I don't think it's going to be that hard. I think, ultimately, a bigger trick is going to be to get it so that it's more salient for patients. Um, If you have uh, breast cancer, for example, and want to know about very specific features of a journey with breast cancer in terms of where to get care, you probably don't want to hear all that much about testicular cancer or, you know, other conditions that you don't have. And right now, information is not set up for the public to do that.
3: Um, I just quickly add, um, this is similar to the problem with uh, benefit mandates, which is all of them come in because there's somebody who thinks it's a good idea, and then um, status quo bias makes it them very hard to get rid of. Uh, but I certainly want to echo the problem of making these salient to ordinary consumers. If we want either a supply-side or a demand-side effect, we need measures that actually make sense, that map onto something that patients actually care about um, and that are salient, and I think we got a long way to go on all of those measures.
6: Okay. Sir? Uh,
3: Emmanuel Bonilla with the American Society of Anesthesiologists. My shameless plug is that uh, to air as human, there's a very nice section about what anesthesiologists have done over the past 30 years to improve patient
6: safety. It's also in
3: this book by the way. In this book as well.
6: And even to this day, we operate our closed claims project, which looks at closed liability claims
3: uh, to see what physicians can learn from errors that occurred. My question is, I was intrigued by this surgical black box and I'm wondering if any of you know anything more about that. And what is the chances that that's going to be coming to the U S more broadly?
1: Um, Well, We've kind of stayed in good touch with Theodore, um, who you saw in the film. And right before, actually last week, we updated that end tag where it says that um, the surgical black box that he's designing is now adapted into 10 different hospitals and 10 more are coming. Last we heard from him, the American College of Surgeons was working on something. So, you know, I mean, he is working very hard to make sure that that design is being implemented as far as he can reach. And what I think's really important about it, um, because yeah, I mean, every single surgical theater should have it, ideally. Um, there's a whole lot, list of reasons why they might not be able to or why they don't. But what I think's really fascinating about that surgical black box, the OR black box, is that they're not using it as a tool to catch surgeons making mistakes or catch them in the act, right? It's not a litigation tool. It's a learning tool. And it's used to compile data in a compelling way so that people who don't even have the black box can use that data. So, whether or not it ends up in every hospital is actually less important if this is, you know, if we're talking about the one that we see in the film, than finding a way to use that data that is compiled and applying it everywhere else. And that's what patient safety, to me, is really all about. It's not necessarily finding some specific thing that every single doctor has to do every time they ever do anything, but actually finding ways to get the information to them so that they can do it without having to wait 20 years for their own hospital to put that in place. That's what I'd like to see. So when it comes to the surgical black box, they are making strides, and they're not the only ones doing that. Um, but I, I, I think there's a long way to go.
0: David, Carolyn?
3: Um, yeah, I, I looked up the black box. Um, I don't have Mike's confidence that it's... Uh, it belongs uh, to be spread more broadly. I think that remains to be seen. Uh, I need to know a little bit more about it. Um, I think the the important point about it is it's an input rather than an output measure, right? And so maybe it's an important input and maybe there are better inputs and maybe focusing on inputs rather than outputs is what's gotten us into this situation And we shouldn't be adding more inputs unless we can really show how they have an impact on outputs. And what we want are people to survive the surgery um, and have a good outcome and not have an infection and for the surgery to be done on the right person in the right way. And I think it's an open question what the optimal way of doing that is. But I think it's pretty clear the way we're doing it leads to more errors than we should be tolerating.
2: So I think, you know, for me, the delicate balance, it's hard to watch it as it's filmed here without finding it very compelling. I love it. You see those graphs, you know, and he does allude to the fact that there's a lot of analytics behind it, but it sounds like it comes right out of the box, like Google. And um, The question is how that information would ultimately be used. Every time I see people collecting information in videos on the simulation, even just for teaching and learning... Um, the next thing you get is an explanation about whether they store the videos, can they be sued over it, and so forth. So, um, it, you know, at the begi- right after the Institute of Medicine report, there are people who also want the NTSB to come marching, or something like it, to come marching into hospitals. Um, for some situations, I'd say that's probably a good idea. Um, I worry that it would be way, way overdone because the minute you add that fear element, you've just shut off another layer of information of people reporting uh, what could be helpful. So that's the balance that I worry a lot about.
0: Uh, in the middle, in the back, on the aisle, in the red. Oh. <clears throat> well, yes.
5: Good evening. Thank you very much for the documentary. It was extremely interesting, even though it's a sad reality. Um, I have um, two questions, but one with a comment. It's um, when you were saying, oh, why don't you ask your doctor, hey, make sure you wash your hands or make sure this, make sure that. But you got to understand as a patient, and I've seen that with my mother and uh, with myself, um, it was... Um, she was coming back from an x-ray and um, she was diagnosed that her cancer metastized. And my mother said, but be, please be aware that I have um, lost my um, um, gallbladder in a car accident. And it might be just a nodules that grew back up. And the response of the doctor was, you're not going to teach me my job. What do you think you are? So this kind of behavior from doctors happens all the time. So if you start making that, making comments, you, you're putting yourself in a situation where they have your medical files and sometimes they blackmail you because um, they don't want to give it away to um, another doctor to pass along information and then they bully you. So what do you think a patient is going to do because we rely on the doctors and usually it happens in an emergency situation where the doc the the patient is um you know panicked about some medical results and they don't always think to go and see another person and they come back home they're totally upset and um and the other que- the other question was about the or black box um as you know, doctors, they have a sort of a confidence and sometimes an attitude that I know better than anyone. It's just, you know, interesting work field. How do you think doctors, surgeons are going to take this black box in their own operating room where it's a total sacred area and we know that doctor, between surgeons or assistants in the OR there's quite a bit of tension and competition?
1: Uh, well, I'm going to... Do the second question first, um, briefly. Just using a, a a reference because there's a show that's on TV that just finished its first season that um, I was curiously interested in because it was a lot of patient safety topics. It's called The Resident. Um, one of their episodes actually kind of touched on this, and they had a black box that was there to make sure that uh, you know whatever was questionable that was going on would be monitored. And it was a huge dramatic argument and fight, and you know, I mean, as you can imagine. So I think our, our imagination can go there, but the hope is that um, it can be implemented in a way that invites the surgeons into the process of development. Now, to, But to touch on the other question, um, I, I think that that's an, uh, an astute observation about what the worst of medicine looks like, but I don't believe that that's what most of medicine looks like. And I, I honestly think that if we can get The message of this film, if one of the messages of this film is to teach the general public that talking to your doctor and having an engaging conversation in which you come with knowledge, that that's acceptable to do, now we also have to work on the other side. The people who do the providing of medicine have to be able to accept the fact that it is a team process, that they're not going to be perfect, and that the people on the other side are just as important as them. That's a hard message to break through a system that's been in place for years and has been doing it in a certain way for years. But I I honestly believe, I have a hard time doing it. I've been working on this film for three years. I've been to the doctor since I started it. I don't like the idea of asking the doctor if they wash their hands. Um, But I'm still working on that. I don't think anyone's going to be able to just willy-nilly just say it. Uh, and, And there's a lot of risk that comes with questioning what your doctor is doing or nurse. But I just think it's important And that's not what we want to hear anybody in medicine say, right? We don't want to hear anybody in medicine say, that's not my job. We don't want to hear anyone in medicine say, "Um, I know more than you. You may, but is there a way to communicate that differently? And I think that one of the things we feature in the film is the training of doctors, of physicians, of how to talk to a patient when an error occurs. And that can be done in a variety of different ways, and it doesn't cost $8 billion in a new facility to teach the next generation of doctors how to communicate to patients in a respectful and collaborative way. And every doctor, nurse, every clinician should do that, and I think we'll all have safer, better care if it
0: happens. Okay. Sir, so in the middle and then on the left over there, please.
6: Hi, Roy Tempe. A uh, question, like we talked about, unintended consequences of government policy with respect to the way Medicare reimburses. And uh, I'm curious what people's thoughts are on unintended consequences on malpractice public policy. For example, in Pennsylvania, if it can be quantitatively measured, Pennsylvania defines malpractice as being three standard deviations away from the mean, you know, if the result is a quantitative thing. And at first blush, that sounds reasonable, but it gives the uh, medical community the perverse incentive to increase the standard deviation. Right, because if you have the doctor that is performing out here where he always fouls it up a little bit, he's creating more buffer for the bulk of the people in the middle, you know, a more safety margin, uh, if you follow what I mean. So it makes me wonder I, I don't have knowledge about the other 50 states or possible unintended consequences, but what people's thoughts are on unintended consequences of public policy with respect to malpractice.
0: How about the professor who's been studying this for 15
6: years?
3: Uh, So uh, medical malpractice is full of unintended and some intended consequences. Um, Whether it's the good news or the bad news, um, paid claims have been declining steadily for the last 20 years, uh, mostly because the smaller claims have fallen out, uh, because the costs of bringing them are high relative. The risk-reward ratio just doesn't make much sense. Um, That's... Bad for negligently injured patients, good for healthcare providers. Um, but uh, I, I don't think you should go to, uh, you know, some vast conspiracy among doctors to engage in bad treatment, so that if something bad happens and they get sued, then they're all in it together. The collective action problems are such that I, I don't think that's particularly plausible, um, and. I'm, I'm quite cynical about uh, healthcare, care, uh, but I'm not remotely that cynical. So I, I think you should have many other things that you should be concerned about before you get to that, right? If you're concerned about medical malpractice, you should be concerned about the fact that people who don't suffer devastating injuries, they can't find a plaintiff's lawyer to take their case because it's just not remotely worth pursuing for most patients. Um, I think that should be a much higher and more salient problem. And Caroline, I'm sure, does not want to talk about malpractice, so... Why is that? uh, Because all of the doctors who work for you don't want you to talk about malpractice.
2: No, I wouldn't say that. Um, Believe it or not, you actually can sue the federal government, so I thought I'd put that myth uh, to rest. Um, I mean, the biggest problem with malpractice is it really doesn't correct the problem we think it's correcting. Uh, perversely, it may actually have an unintended but positive impact on the kind of bullying behavior the last uh, questioner raised, which I think is totally unacceptable. And increasingly, docs are being uh, punished for that kind of behavior. It's no longer considered just acceptable because you're so smart and such a good doctor. Um, Certainly, it would not be acceptable in our system for a surgeon to behave that way, which doesn't mean that we pick up every instance of it. Um, We know from years and years of research that um, a lot of the people who have really seriously bad care never sue. Yes, it's hard to get a lawyer, but they don't even think about it, right? And a lot of the people who sue, actually, you can't prove that they had negligent cares, which tends to create, you know, ill will on both sides of the equation. Um, so other than creating closed claims that uh, fields like anesthesia and to some extent other institutions have used as a way to learn and improve care, it's hard to argue that malpractice, the, the way it's currently constructed, is making a big difference. Sir?
7: Yeah, uh, my name is Amios Czeg. I'm the nurse consultant to the Enhance study of CDC. And I, I'm sorry, but I wanted you to be a little bit more nurse-centric in your uh, film, because we are basically the one, not me. I had taught, I touched the patient during the dinosaur times. But uh, basically, we are the most in touch and most close to the patient care, number one. Number two, I don't know if you didn't have time or you didn't, or you wanted to look at the bigger pictures. There are a whole bunch of covariates that you completely did not focus on, such an issue of physicians being very fatigued, such an issue of tremendous amount of patient care that need to be taken care of by few nurses. And a third, maybe a little bit softer, is has to do with human engineering. The best example I can give you is inter- in the intersection between IV tubes and nurses and the bore, the way you attach tubes, for example, for a long time, the tubes that went to feeding looked more or less the same as the tube that is connected to IV. I can go into big details about it. So, and the last point is that the nurses do pay attention to it. We actually the movement within nursing, and my wife, who is a professor of nursing, can speak more about it if you give her time. Anyhow, the issue is a cousin. We are trying. There is a framework today in nursing that look at quality, safety, and nursing education. Thank you.
1: And thank you for sharing that. I mean, Honestly, as we've created the film, we started to, to see that, and we started to see the role that nurses have in healthcare and how incredibly vital and, and uh, pervasive it is. I mean, it's everywhere, and, and it's not something that I was completely aware of when we started the film. It didn't uh, necessarily drive our film. You know, there was—I I think you can imagine—we didn't have any active choice not to address nurses. But with r- incredibly limited real estate in a film, we tried to tackle things in a way that hopefully can be more generally approached, so that we can start to have more in more specific conversations about what drives medicine and quality, like we're doing today. Um, I wish we could have done a series. I mean, if we had the resources and time to have done this in a series approach, we would have been able to have an entire episode dedicated only to what nurses are doing in this, in this field. It would have been a really great addition. I, I hope that as I continue to hear things like this, I'm going to you know, bring it with me as I bring the film around and start to share the message of what nurses' role is beyond just the, the 77 minutes of the film. So thank you for for adding that.
2: Yeah, I would simply say, and I say it all the time in my job, right, you don't have safe, high-quality care, particularly in hospitals without nurses. I mean, there's a lot of hospital care for which the docs are almost a footnote. The nurses are really the main show for sure. Sir?
8: G'day. My name is Michael Sinnott. I'm a physician from Australia. Uh, I would like feedback on three of my observations that I think have slowed the acceptance of patient safety within the healthcare system. The first, first one is that I think there is a subtle but important difference between patient safety and patient care. As doctors, we're trained to practice patient care, which is very subtly different to patient safety, which is a team sport. And I think there's, in the past, there's been (coughs) people saying to a doctor that patient safety isn't good. They hear patient care is not good. They take offence and they then tune out. The second one is a thinking issue. We all appreciate how important the no blame culture is for improving patient safety. The problem is staff safety is lagging way behind patient safety. We therefore have staff with a schizophrenic mindset. On the one hand, they still blame themselves if they make a mistake. But on the other hand, we expect them to, to operate in a no blame culture for staff safety. And the third one is a measurement tool. I think that there's an enormous amount of data that is untapped for patient safety. The purchasing data at a hospital level can be used to triangulate some of the mistakes that we're finding. For example, if you're a CEO of a hospital and you knew how much soap and hand lotion was bought by the different departments in your hospital, if one of the departments stops buying soap, then you realise that they're not using soap and it's a different way of finding it. So I'd like to ask the experts if they think any of those observations are relevant.
2: So I was most intrigued by your first observation about patient care versus patient safety. I mean, uh, I know all of my medical training was about what I, the doctor, would be doing and how much I controlled. And the implication was that uh, I was the main show. And, you know, that's kind of heady experience once you actually know something and so forth. Until um, a lab test gets lost or something beyond your control happens that actually impacts a patient that you have been providing care for, and then you realize that you're kind of trapped. uh, That healthcare is uh, way too complicated to just say, you know, no physician actually provides great care by him or herself. So I think increasingly from day one of medical school they actually have to be connected. In fact, I think Mike's movie needs to be shown on the first day of school at all medical schools, but that's my next campaign. Um, But that is, um, you know, this is, I think the notion that patient care and patient safety are quite different tracks back to that psychology, but it also means that docs have to acknowledge that they don't do this alone, which... Many people would willingly say, you're right, you know, help me out here. This is a team sport. Other people take the view that, no, 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 I have to be the captain of this ship and team and so forth. So uh, we'll work through that, I'm confident.
0: On the aisle, and
2: then... This is great.
0: And out
6: here. Uh, John Burkhart, Nero. I'm curious about the push towards greater transparency in... Uh, errors and the direct acknowledgement, one of the most critical variables in patient outcomes with documentation, I mean, going back to the writings of Aristotle, is that outcome, one of the most critical uh, variables is a patient's confidence in the capacity of a physician to treat them. And so I'm wondering if with this increased push towards acknowledging mistakes, being very upfront about that, would you expect to see a short-to-medium term Decrease in patient outcomes, and then, if so, would you expect a longer-term restoration to normal, or even increase as there is a growing population-level acceptance of this approach?
2: You know, the way you framed that is uh, really quite compelling. Um, the truth is, of course, that medicine is pretty uncertain business, and Um, We don't, we have better outcomes when patients are asking questions um, or when they're smart enough to say, wait a second, you said this would all be fine, but actually it is not fine and so forth. Um, There are a number of studies that show that patient satisfaction is improved if uh, physicians and other caregivers are open and honest, uh, when things don't go as planned or intended or mistakes are made. whether that undermines that other trust factor. I mean, one could sort of argue that uh, abstractly, that, you, that it could go either way. But I know there are studies that show that patient satisfaction actually improves. It may or may not have any impact on people's tendency to pursue uh, legal action. but
3: Yeah, I, I don't think we want to encourage misplaced confidence. Yeah. So if, you know, more transparency allows people to more precisely calibrate the degree of trust that they ought to have, then it strikes me that's a good thing. There's almost nobody who will argue in favor of uh, less transparency pretty much regardless of the issue.
1: And I would reference the University of Utah's doing something really impressive that I wish we had captured in the film, uh, where they basically created their own system in which patients can provide their own feedback in an open platform and unless it's derogatory of some kind, you know, it's there and it's up. It's essentially like you know their own personal Yelp, and other patients can see it. The doctors, the physicians, the surgeons can see it, and um, I'm sure it creates uh, some competition for quality too, which isn't, it, which wouldn't hurt. But at the same time, that's pretty wild to be doing um, as a as a hospital, and they've seen tremendous success. The reduction of errors is pretty clear and there's some research on it that you can you can look up.
2: That I'm sorry? No, University of Utah. University of Utah. We're, we're starting to do this, we're, we're at the drowning in data phase right at the moment, but um, just as a little curiosity, Yelp care, uh, correlates very highly with HCAPs. so. Sir.
9: Herbro's Rose, um, s- several years before the Affordable Care Act went into effect, PBS ran a uh, program where they took a look at uh, medical uh, uh, systems in about eight different countries around the world. Yeah. Uh, I found that a number of things that they went into, uh, some, had, some countries had better uh, features than others, Uh, But it didn't seem that the United States adopted any of the, what I consider to be positive attributes of these various systems. So what I'm wondering is, um, how do the medical errors uh, in United States hospitals, by whatever criterion you use to measure it, whether it's uh, readmissions or um, uh, infection rates, or some other criteria and compared with other um, countries around the world?
1: Um, they, obviously, as you can imagine, the data is not as readily available. But one of the things we didn't put in the film, uh, but we um, talked to Ashish Jha about, was the, the relevance of error in other countries. And um, you know his work is incredible on this. He works globally. I I I think it's very clear that other countries, every country that delivers medicine is experiencing preventable mistakes. It happens, as you can imagine, humans make mistakes. The difference is how do those countries, with the way that their healthcare systems are set up, address those issues? I mean, I can't speak to it personally, but I obviously have seen that some actions have been taken, and it depends on who's doing it. We we saw NHS uh, in the UK; the nurses were protesting um, within the last year, I forget when it was, but they were protesting for certain measures that were in many cases relevant to patient safety. I'm not saying that that's how it's going to work here, but every single country faces the same issues that we present in the movie. And uh, I, I think you could probably speak a little further to how they might be able to address them, but, you know.
2: Yeah, so, you know, a fair amount of our early safety and quality measures come off of billing data, And let's be honest, we are like more expert at billing than any of these other systems, just because of multiple payers uh, and so forth. When I was at ARC, I was part of an effort at Commonwealth to try to measure this across five or seven uh, developed countries. I'll just say it was really, really hard because you ran into all kinds of confounders, like we do some things outpatient and they have people admitted to the hospital for it. So trying to get to a true population-based approach which probably would have been the better way to go, is a lot harder. You know, if we were, say for example, looking at some outcomes for breast cancer, uh, for us to have breast cancer patients in the hospital, they're probably sicker for other reasons than if they're in some other country. So, I will say we probably hit every rock in the path without getting to a lot of enlightenment.
0: Um. I think we're gonna have to make that our last question. I want to thank uh, Mike Eisenberg, Carolyn Clancy, and David Hyman. uh, And thank all of you for your excellent questions and invite you to join us on the second floor in the George Yeager Auditorium, or is it? uh, And join us outside for a reception. Thank you very much.